This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Peggy Hodgkins, and today we are talking about snakes. Rattlesnakes, that is. I'm Scott Gibson, and I'm the wildlife conservation biologist for the southeastern portion of the state for the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources. Basically, what that means is I am the, the terrestrial non-game biologist. So I work with birds and mammals that are not animals that can be hunted within the state of Utah. And so I, I oversee that program. And prior to my work with the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources, um, I worked with uh, nonprofit organizations as well as in academia. And I did a lot of uh, work and research on reptiles and amphibians. Specifically, my graduate and postgraduate work were done on different species of rattlesnakes in the Midwest. I have a lot of experience and background with reptiles and amphibians, as well as the birds and mammals that I, I currently oversee. So your position at the DWR, what kind of work do you do there with the non-game animals? The work that we do in, in what we call the conservation program within the state of Utah is essentially to, to look at species that we have either don't have enough data on or species that we have data to suggest that they are possibly in decline. Uh, an example of that would be uh, a pinion jay, which is a, a bird species that we know has, has been in decline recently, has been getting some attention. Four years ago, the state of Utah, and I'm, I'm the state lead for pinion jays, we developed a survey protocol to go out and, and try and find pinion jays in the landscape and also look at nesting colonies because they're birds that actually nest in colonies, which is kind of unique for a lot of for land birds. We don't see that very often. We also do a lot of general bird surveys um, just to look at population trends among different songbirds. Um, and that's part of a nationwide effort as well, or at least the Westwide effort of something called the Integrated Monitoring of Bird Conservation Regions. So that's a, a big uh, program that we participate in as well. We do a lot of other bird work. There's a lot of stuff that we do with, with raptors, so hawks and eagles. We do a lot of monitoring of, of that. And then there's also the mammal side of things, which we do a lot of bat work. So every three years, there's a big push within the state of Utah to do um, bat monitoring. We know that bats are in decline in a lot of parts of the country. We want to kind of stay ahead of the curve with bats and, you know, look at population trends and see what species are present and if they're present over time. And so we do that through capturing bats. Um, we also do a lot of work with prairie dogs, pika, which is a high elevation animal that's related to rabbits. So basically any, any animal that we need to, to gather more information on that kind of falls under that NRV program, I would be you know, responsible for sort of implementing those programs or, or you know, surveys or you know, management plans or whatever we need within that southeastern region of Utah. So your passion and I, I guess your dissertation work is in herpetology and mainly rattlesnakes. It sounds like you've studied studied primarily in the Midwest and also in, in California. So now you're here in Southeast Utah. What, what is the diversity like with reptiles and amphibians in such an arid climate? That's a really good question. And, and it's one that we surprisingly don't have as great of an idea as, as you would expect. Um, just because Southeastern Utah is, is, a lot of it's very remote and there has not been a lot of surveys. I mean, we know, you know, lizard diversity is quite high because it's a desert environment and they, they do pretty well. Snake diversity is, is fairly high as well. 
And, and surprisingly, amphibian diversity is, is not bad. Uh, we only have one species of salamander in the entire state of Utah. It's a tiger salamander. <laughs> but there's quite a few frogs and toads species for sure. And the water sources that we do have in, in the arid parts of Utah do support a fair suite of species for sure. I wouldn't say it compares necessarily, at least in terms of species diversity, maybe to uh, some parts of California or even some parts of the Midwest. But Diversity is, is fairly high. Uh, the highest regions of diversity in Utah would be the southwest, or uh, yeah, I'm sorry, the southwest corner around St. George, where you have the convergence of kind of three different ecoregions. You have the Colorado Plateau, you have the Great Basin Desert, and you have the Mojave Desert coming together. That's a very herpetologically rich area. So there's quite a few species of reptiles, especially in that area. But southeastern Utah is not, not bad. I mean, considering that snakes are usually, hopefully, out of sight for the most part. I mean, how do you go about studying snakes? There's, there's different ways that we can do it. If they're general surveys, we can use techniques called drift fencing and funnel traps, which are essentially ways to kind of intercept snakes on the landscape as they're moving across and then herd them into these traps called funnel traps. And again, they're, they're passive, they're not baited or anything. And and then we can check those traps, you know, regularly, at least once or twice a day and, and look at what's been, been caught in those. You can do just kind of general visual surveys where you actually go out and inspect the landscape, but it's, that can be difficult. Certain times of the year and certain ways of doing that can be better. Night driving can be very effective where you actually find uh, remote paved roads that in the summertime will heat up and snakes tend to come out at night. They become nocturnal during those really intense heat periods and we'll tend to warm up on the roads at night. So that's, that's one way to do it. You know, the, the way that we get the most kind of ecological and biological information about snakes in general, and a lot of species too, is to use transmitters. And so if we are able to, to catch snakes, transmitters can actually be surgically implanted in snakes and then tracked using, you know, VHF telemetry. And I think the, the technology is probably getting good enough now that some snakes could probably be fit with GPS transmitters. That allows us to kind of get a better insight because we can actually go out and find where the snakes are in the, on the ground and, and do habitat assessment. That's one of the, I think, the best ways to study snakes, for sure, is if you, you can use telemetry. In Southeast Utah, I mean, for, I guess for rattlesnakes, what are, the, uh, what are the species of rattlesnakes that we have here? There's a little bit of debate on that as well. As I mentioned kind of earlier, we don't have a lot of good species information as to where things are found. But the two species we know for sure that are in the southeastern region are the prairie rattlesnake and the western rattlesnake. And the, the western rattlesnake that we have in southeastern Utah, it's a subspecies called the midget faded rattlesnake. And it's called that because it's very, it's very short uh, and very faded in coloration. And so yeah, it's, it's one of the smaller rattlesnake species. It's not very big. And that one is the one that if, if you're talking kind of in the upper Colorado Plateau area, kind of Price, Utah, down to Grand Junction, down towards Moab, that's probably the most common one. And then the prairie rattlesnakes, we tend to get further southeast in the state. So as you move down towards, you know, southern Moab, down towards uh, Monticello, blanding those areas, that's the species that probably predominates. I say probably because they're not easily identified visually and separated, but there's for sure two species, the, the prairie and then the, uh, the midget faded or the western rattlesnake. 
where do, where do these snakes live? I mean, I know they're in the ground, but in general, <laughs> is there an elevation? Is it anywhere? Where do they live? You know, broadly, and I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of talk about Utah as a whole, but and, and just rattlesnakes across Utah. I mean, pretty much any place you are in Utah, you're kind of in rattlesnake country. Of course, they're not gonna be found as readily in cities and neighborhoods and things. I mean, there are certainly places where you increase your chances. But kind of broadly speaking, you know, rattlesnakes and, and the two species we have in southeastern Utah really can fit this as well, can be found quite high in elevation. Um, I found midget faded rattlesnakes up to eight or 9,000 feet, if not higher, all, you know, all the way down to, you know, the bottom of the little Grand Canyon at the wedge in the San Rafael Swell. So, I mean, they, there's a lot of variability there. Same thing with, with prairie rattlesnakes. I've seen them in sagebrush country. I've, I've found them, you know, higher up on the flanks of the LaSalle's. There's a lot of variability with where, where these snakes can be found. There are some kind of commonalities. A lot of these snakes, we get relatively cold temperatures. We're a cold, cold desert. Uh, and the, the winter, it does get cold. And so snakes do need to find a, a suitable place to, to den up in the winter. And so oftentimes they need rock structures or rocky places, uh, you know, cliffside habitats, things like that to, to, uh, to den up. That is sort of a, a common theme there for sure. But, you know, any place in Moab, you know, any place in that area for sure is, is rattlesnake country and all the way up into to elevation for sure. In Utah, but especially Southeast Utah is rattlesnake country. So they like it. But has the extended drought over the last 15, 20 years, has it had, do you know if there's been any effect on populations or movements, you know, migrations or whatever? I don't have good data that I've seen anyway to look at that. It stands to reason that it has. I've heard and seen that there have been increases around water sources of snakes being, you know, around those areas. Uh, or, or it could just be that because of recreation, we get more reports and, and more sightings of rattlesnakes around those areas. Rattlesnakes don't necessarily have to drink free water, but they, they will, especially in really hot, dry times. What probably is, has changed more, though, has been their prey. So looking at things like rodent populations, which are cyclical by nature anyway, but the drought probably has more significant impacts on, on that, which in turn kind of indirectly will affect rattlesnakes. And so it's possible that we are seeing them having to come out earlier or maybe move further, spend more time foraging, whereas in the past, uh, you know, prey bases may have been a little bit higher. So there's probably an impact there that has maybe altering behavior, but I could not give you any definitive, this is what we know, this is what we don't, as it relates to drought. And so, you know, back to the uh, the recreationists, et cetera, and, and the average listener to this podcast, I mean, what, <laughs> where are you most likely to encounter them and how can you try to avoid an encounter with the rattlesnake? A lot of encounters though take place along trails, especially near water sources. So some of the streamside areas tend to be quite rich in you know, rattlesnake abundance, especially at certain times of the year. Early summer, late spring, they're still kind of hanging out maybe around some den areas. They're a little more sedentary. Kind of later in the summer, we tend to see some more sedentary behaviors. But that's, that's really the, the places that we tend to get the most encounters. It doesn't necessarily mean that's the only place that snakes are. 
but being around any type of rocky habitat, any hillsides are, are especially good. Some place that has a lot of cracks and fissures, that's a hillside that's getting some sun, uh, especially if it's been on the cooler side, you know, there's a chance that snakes are going to come out and, and bask in those areas. Those are really the places that, that we tend to, to see a lot of snakes and have a lot of encounters. As far as minimizing encounters, short of not recreating outside, it's difficult to say what to do. Fortunately, rattlesnake encounters still are not ultra common and, and you know, encounters that result in some type of bite are, are even rarer. You know, just being vigilant, honestly, keeping pets on leashes is a big one. Pets are oftentimes the, the victims of bites because they tend to discover the rattlesnake and dogs especially will get their face right into the, the snake and that's intimidating to the snake. And so just, you know, being vigilant, not putting your hands and feet in places that you can't see, especially when it's hot. And if you're, there's cracks that are cooler or underneath rocks, they're in the daytime, that's where they're going to be. So those are things you can do to, to minimize those negative encounters with rattlesnakes. Is there a, a general temperature at which the snakes no longer want to be above ground? There, there really isn't. It's, it's probably more driven by kind of time of the year, photo period, how much sun there is, and, okay. and temperature. It's kind of those three factors. You're, in, in the area around Moab, you're going to kind of start to see the earliest you're probably going to see snakes would you know, be probably in March, although April would probably be more, more likely. And then as, as the spring goes on, you're going to be more likely to see them. Once they come out of quote-unquote hibernation, I say quote-unquote because in, in snakes they call it brumation instead of hibernation, but once they come out of that, they're usually out for good. So temperature is not going to be a major driver. Uh, if it's very cold, they will tend to seek shelter because they, being you know ectothermic animals, animals that are cold-blooded, they don't move very well when it's cold. And they're still going to be out, they just may not be active. But if it's a nice warm or a nice sunny day, even when the air temperature is a little cold, they will come out and bask. I, I would be somewhat shocked to see snakes super active below 55 or so or 60, and but not surprised at all to see them moving around above those temperatures. But there is no hard cutoff. There are a lot of myths out there about rattlesnakes and snakes in general, and lots of misinformation. Scott sets the record straight on a few of the key myths here. One of the things I hear a lot is just people are always always come out with this idea that young baby, smaller rattlesnakes are more dangerous than adults. And the theory behind that is I've heard baby rattlesnakes or young rattlesnakes tend to, when they bite, they put out all of their venom and they can't control that. Whereas the adults can, which is not true. Young rattlesnakes can meter their venom the same way that adults can. And the vast majority of dangerous or, or bites that result in bad outcomes have, have come from larger rattlesnakes. So there's you know, you don't want to mess with a young rattlesnake either, but there's there's no truth to the to the idea that baby or young rattlesnakes are more dangerous than the adults. The other one I hear a lot is that rattlesnakes can add, they add a, a rattle every year. So you can count the rattles and tell how old a, a rattlesnake is, which is also not true. They, they do it every time they shed. So every time they shed their skin, they add a new rattle segment. And that that's variable. They can shed when they're young several times in a year and when they get older. And, and rattlesnakes can live to be quite old. They can live 20 or 30 years sometimes. Every, you know, when they're really old, they may shed once in a year or you know, once every other year as they're growing slower. So you can't really tell an age too much by, by that. And they, they lose rattle segments a lot as they're moving around in the landscape. And yeah, so there's, there's kind of a lot of misinformation out there about rattlesnakes. And, and I guess the other thing that we should probably just sort of get out there is that the idea that you know, what to do if you are, are bitten. And again, bites are rare. Uh, 
especially in Utah, but in you know most of the United States, bites are are unusual. It numbers less than ten thousand people per year in the United States on average, and there's kind of a lot of misconception about what to do if you are bitten as well. They still are pushing oftentimes extractor kits or these negative suction devices that are supposed to suck out venom if you're bitten. And, you know, they've, they've actually shown that that's not effective and can actually cause damage. And, and honestly, there, there really isn't much you can do for a rattlesnake bite um, short of getting medical attention. And so I think that that's important to get that idea out there. There's going to be usually swelling associated with bites. And so removing tight fitting clothing, if you have rings or something in an area where there was, where you were bitten is, is a good preventative measure to, to decrease chances of there being tissue damage in that area, you know, and then just remaining calm and, and using a cell phone to, to call 911 as quickly as you can when you get service and seeking medical attention. That's really the, the best thing you can do for rattlesnake bites. Any of the stuff you can buy or any of the other kind of myths you've heard about, you know, cutting and sucking venom out or applying tourniquets, things like that are, are no, not good. So it's really just seeking medical attention is, is the best thing. You can do. Well, so that is the treat. The only treatment is antivenom. It really is. Okay. Yeah. And there was the other thing I guess I should say is, is, and I still know some, some people who adhere to this and incorrectly there's, there's an idea in the past that antivenom was often worse than the, the snake bite. And there was never any truth to that, but there was, I guess, truth to people having reactions to antivenom and oftentimes, not oftentimes, but sometimes going to anaphylaxis and things like that. And if a hospital wasn't necessarily equipped to handle anaphylaxis, then that could be life-threatening in and of itself. Nowadays, the, the antivenoms are very high-tech. There's two companies that, that uh, hospitals in the United States use. Both those antivenoms are incredibly effective. Incidents of anaphylaxis are very low. And even if you do go into anaphylaxis, the hospitals are very well equipped to treat, to treat that. There's no real inherent danger over a rattlesnake bite to, to seeking treatment. Yeah. The danger would come in not seeking treatment. So I, that's just something that I, I still hear from time to time. We are going to be doing, and we being DWR and specifically me, on August 19th down in Moab, um, I'm putting on a reptile and amphibian night specifically for the public where we'll actually have some kind of locally caught reptiles and amphibians and kind of talking about reptile and amphibian biology. It'll be seven o'clock, uh, 7 p.m. August 19th, and it's at, it'll be at the Matheson Preserve. There do require registration, uh, and that can be done on something called Eventbrite, which is a, if you do a search for Eventbrite, B-R-I-T-E, on the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources page, um, it'll take you there and you can make reservations for that if you're interested. A big thank you to Scott for taking time to talk with Science Moab, and be sure to look out for Reptile and Amphibian Night in Moab. That's August 19th at 7 p.m. at the Matheson Wetland Preserve. Go to wildlife.utah.gov and sign up on Eventbrite. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Newsletter by Luke Williams. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.